Catching up with news in and around the world at what's happened during the week and what is going to be happening during this coming week. We chat to our senior news reporter, Kevin Brunt, this morning. Kevin, a very good morning to you and welcome again to a Sunday morning. It's a pleasure, Zane. Good morning. What's your favorite love song? My favorite love song, mm. After meeting um, Jonathan Butler in person at the studios this week, um, there's a couple of his songs. My dad used to play it over and over when we were younger and in, in my childhood. So Jonathan Butler's songs, but there are a couple. I also listen to a bit of classical music. So I don't really have a specific love song then. But yeah, anything Jonathan Butler is welcome. There we go. Kevin Brunt, the big Jonathan Butler fan. Kevin, this week has been a, a bit of an up and down in terms of news. The crime statistics have been out. And I mean, over the past uh, few weeks, there's been some uh, a number of very huge gun-related shootings and killings uh, recorded in the country where we've got the Trabeja. Eight people were killed and uh, three others injured in a mass shooting over there. We have the 17-year-old matric learner that was also shot. And uh, the, the crime statistics, I mean, fatal shootings uh, uh, claimed the, the life of uh, uh, Keenan, uh, the AKA Forbes, uh, and, and his friend Tabelo, you know, Tibbs Motswane, uh, this week. And, I mean, there was the, the uh, funeral uh, of, of, of Keenan yesterday. Um, this has sent shockwaves through the country and it's once again highlighted the extent of gun violence. So uh, what do the crime stats reveal in terms of gun violence, uh, Kevin? Yes, then, if you correctly say the death of AKA and, and his friend Tabello there in Durban, uh, once again shed light on the extent of violent crime and gun violence in the country. We've also seen in Tlaberha over the past couple of weeks, there's been a number of shootings being recorded there. On an ongoing basis, I would also like, uh, almost like to say, we in the newsroom get used to um, reports being sent from from the police with regard to shooting incidents right here in Cape Town as well. The police minister highlighted the rise in murders in general, uh, recorded for the third quarter of last year, and that is from October to December. Zane, he said that there's a 10% increase in the number of murders being recorded, and that is 7,555 murders. And of these 3,144, uh, 42% of, of the total are because of gun violence. So it's really a huge problem in society, and it appears as if it's just increasing, Then There's also um, the news this week coming from here from Marmersbury with regard to a 62-year-old man that was arrested after police uncovered an arms cache consisting of about 44 firearms in his possession. Um, so there are a lot of questions from people, you know, where are the authorities? What is SAPS doing to intervene? Shouldn't government implement more stringent legislation to keep uh, the public safe? On the other end, there's also people who rightfully and legally own guns. Or where does it leave them? So I spoke to Paul Oxley, the firearms from the Firearms Advocacy Group Gun Owners South Africa, and he spoke to me about a 2014 study that was conducted by Wits University that highlighted the need for more effective policing. Yes, Paul, then. Literally, the conclusion of the document says there's nothing wrong with the firearms legislation. The problem is with the police's lack of visible policing. It's the police's lack of visible policing, and I think the, the after the after the actual um, you know release of statistics we're looking at uh, for the last quarter of the year between October and December, uh, a total of 84 murders per per day. Uh, a number of people are calling for for the head of Jackie Sele- Jackie um, not Jackie Selebi. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's the previous yeah, one. Um, they they, they call him for the head of Becky Taylor. Yes, yes. Yes, and, 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 and the other question leaves. Now, after you've done all this research and, and you have the data, what do you do with it, essentially? What is the need of compiling how many murders have been uh, been carried out? How many uh, gun-related violence uh, have been recorded in the country? If you don't take the data and implement it somewhere, or try and um, you know improve uh, you know gaps within policing, um, you can't just put the file or the data there on on your desk. I suppose so. Work and and essentially, government is is the authoritative body that needs to take further action of who is uh, you know legally empowered to do more to keep citizens safe mm. um yeah we, we'll have to see during the course of this week exactly you know if if uh big taylor will be answering in parliament um as to you know what the statistics are and and uh, eventually what the resolute is going to be in order to to bring about some kind of change because we cannot continue with with a, a statistic of 84 murders per day and more than 130 sexual offenses every single day um it is an alarming statistic you know but uh, when we have load shedding to worry about, there's a lot of other things also to worry about. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Beckett Taylor was saying, it's not only the police that needs to fight crime. Well, I don't know who else needs to fight crime in any case, you know, because it's a it's a very difficult situation. I depend on the police. If my house gets broken into, I depend on the police to, to give me that assistance. But, Kevin, moving on from that, uh, you know, this week is the big international event that's set to kick off out in Cape Town, uh, broadcast to 176 countries all over the world. It's the ABB Formula E. What is expected to, play, to take place in the last couple of days of this particular event in, in Greenpoint, Kevin? Yes, and there's a lot of excitement as Cape Town is set to host the E-Pre, that is the world's first fully electric street racing series. Um, on display also will be the latest innovations and electric, um, in electric vehicle technology, also alternative energy solutions. There are 22 electric cars that will set off from the starting line, that is on Flay Road, then making its way down Helen Susman Boulevard and then to Granger Bay Boulevard. Now, the city um, leaders expect over 20,000 people to attend this event. Um, and there's also, as part of the lineup and some of the side events uh, taking place, there's also uh, the concept of Formula Students. And this is a program run in countries like Germany, the United Kingdom and others where universities build a race car and then they compete against each other. And now the organizers of uh, EPRI here in Cape Town have now, uh, through the University of Warwick in the United Kingdom, they've now brought the concept home and they've partnered with six universities, which include the University of Cape Town, as well as the Cape Peninsula University of Technology, CPUT, on this project to also allow university students, but as well as high school students, to get a bit of insight, a bit of training with regard to, um, you know, considering uh, motor racing as a, as, for, as a career form, but not just for drivers, also, uh, you know, within the business side of this. And earlier this week, the head of entrepreneurship at Warwick University, Alexander McLeod, spoke more about what this concept entails, Zane. 
Formula Student Africa, our aim is to be an advocate for e-mobility, but also to create a talent pipeline for that industry. And working with e-movement and having the Formula E race or the Cape Town e-pre as pinnacle is absolutely fantastic. So what we're looking to do is to work in high schools and in universities to advocate e-mobility, to create opportunities for skills development and knowledge transfer so that we have more young people understanding what opportunities are available in that space. And it's not just engineering focused. Um, We... Spoke to Ian Banner yesterday also, and there's major excitement happening in and around Cape Town. Uh, We had a chat two weeks ago, Kevin, to J.P. Smith, who said, you know, um, they all said they've met with the the organizers and promoters. um, And they've also kind of like set down, you know, they because the city is absolutely great when it comes to international events. The city is really on top of it uh, when it does come to these events. And they make sure that these events happen without incident. And uh, they've been fantastic. Fantastic so far. So everybody's looking forward to next Saturday when this uh, the ABB Formula E uh, pre the E pre race will take place in in Cape Town. Uh, there's also been some upheaval at tertiary institutions during the course of this week, and in particular the University of Cape Town. Uh, you know, uh, we'll be chatting to somebody a little bit later on from the university, but we're only going to be chatting about new causes that they've got on, in their online section. Uh, we have understood that, you know, they'll be moving back to face-to-face lectures after teaching uh, and, and learning, you know, will be done uh, by face-to-face and not, uh, you know, more in terms of online. And um, after these, you know, this has been sort of, uh, kind of shifted to the back. I saw on Friday evening, Kevin, that there was some disruption at a CPUT right here in town, uh, and it was also about accommodation. So, what what is the root cause of of this protest at at uh, the tertiary institutions? The only key issue that I picked up at UCT, they had a. Uh an event that they called a night vigil in support of these students who are unable to register because they have historic debt. In the past, it used to be if you owe more than a thousand rand, you cannot register. UCT has now upped it to about if you owe the university more than 10,000 rand, you cannot register. So the Western Cape High Court, in the meantime, I've seen in reports, has now also granted the campus an interim interdict against protesting students who disrupt and interfere with the academic program there on the campus. And uh, following the the protest or demonstration that they had on the upper campus on Thursday evening, the university sent out a statement that same evening saying that they will move back to in-person lectures now on the Friday, and that is after it has been moved online due to this protest action um, and demonstrations taking place on on the campus, but I understand from the SRC that that did not take place. They did not move back to um, an in-person teaching and learning platform on Friday. Now, the university did say if faculties are unable to do so by Friday, they should do so from tomorrow. So um, that will be one of my uh, key focus points in news tomorrow to see whether or not the platform has now moved to an in-person platform and what the issues with the students, if it's now been resolved. We've also seen how the law faculty came out and criticized the university management for exposing teaching teach um, lecturers as well as uh, students to this demonstration and to this protest action saying that they knew that this is going to be happening. Also, um, the university, in a very clear statement, set out what they are trying to do to assist students 
who doesn't have accommodation, who are unable to register, uh, mentioning, for instance, something like they will make 5 million rand available to assist the students if the SRC through fundraising initiatives are able to do the same. They also spoke about other other ways of assisting the missing middle student. Um, so, yeah, and, and the other thing is that the law faculty said is how can the university move back to an in-person uh, teaching and learning platform if this cloud of fees and students being unable to register and there are a large number of students who cannot, <clears throat> apologies, register at the university if they um, if they still have this issue going on then so it will it will be interesting to see how the university navigates its way out of this but also as, as you correctly say we've also seen demonstrations here and there at other institutions and it's basically the same issue then with regard to registration and a key issue also being accommodation for students Oh two one four four six oh five six seven. We're chatting this morning to Kevin Brunt, picking up on stories that happened during the course of the week. Oh two one four four six oh five six seven. If you'd love to join the conversation, do you have a child at uh, the university or any of the universities, Stellenbosch or UCT, or for instance at uh, any of uh, the the uh, the CPUT uh, campuses? You know, um, the uh, Peninsula University Technology campuses. If you, you've got a child and you're kind of worried about what's going to happen and uh, what the academic year looks like, you can give us a call on 0214460567 or on the WhatsApp line on 0725671567. Kevin, we've seen this internationally and it's become, uh, you know, research that's that's been painted, painting a very grim picture for the earth and its climate. I mean, we, we have a look at um, the, the flash floods in Kabecha now, uh, yesterday and the day before. And then also the um, the, the cyclone um, out in New Zealand, um, you know that that that's happening there. And we've seen climate change, and we've actually seen climate shifts all over the world. But there is research out, and uh, you know, thirty dangerous feedback loops could permanently shift the Earth's climate. Yeah, then this is an article that I picked up on CNN. It, it, it speaks about dangerous climate feedback loops and saying that it is increasing in the risk of causing a permanent shift away from what the Earth's climate is currently, what we know it to be, um, according to a new study. Now, the feedback loops are explained as cyclical chain reactions that happen when one chain change triggers further changes in a process that keeps on repeating itself. And some of these feedback loops drive down warming, the experts say, but others amplify it more. If you take, for instance, the issue with regard to the melt of the Arctic ice, uh, warming, temperature, warming temperatures cause sea ice to melt, and that reveals uh, then uh, the, the water uh, there in that area. Now, uh, as explained by the researchers, they say as dark surfaces absorb more heat then reflective surfaces like ice, the ocean warms and more ice melts. So not a very good picture painted there for the Earth's climate. And as you correctly say, we can already see it here in our in, in our country as well. Um, also in the Northern Cape with regard to extreme droughts, farmers complaining, um, you know, being stretched financially to try and keep their farming activity going in the midst of this very dry conditions and then also the flooding taking place there in KZN and other areas in Gauteng as well then.
That's Kevin Brunt. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Have a wonderful Sunday and he'll be keeping his eyes peeled uh, on the protests that's happening at UCT, uh, Stellenbosch University and other institutions, tertiary institutions in and around the Western Cape. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Kate Talk. 021-446-0567. The WhatsApp line is on 0725671567. We catch up with Katie McDonald this morning as to what's happening worldwide. Katie, a very good morning to you and welcome to Cape Talk on a Sunday morning again. Yeah, good morning to you. Or good afternoon, Zane. <laughs> um, yeah, good to hear your voice. <laughs> Katie, um, in the aftermath of uh, Cyclone Gabriel, the death toll now rises to 11 and nearly 6,000 people are still un, uh, uncontactable as New Zealanders deal with, with that particular cyclone. I spoke to the family at uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and they said most of the rains are gone. They're fortunate that they are in high-lying areas. A number of people uh, from New Zealand uh, marking themselves safe on Facebook, as is the tradition these days. Uh, what is the latest yes. with that cycle, and Katie? Well, they've managed to contact roughly 3,000 and be uncontactable people. Um, yeah, as you can well imagine, there's all of this destruction or devastation that they now have to deal with. One of the saddest things that you know comes out of this, and um, yeah, I know that you're not unaware of. Uh, people doing this, but sadly there are criminals taking advantage and looting, um, which is always just horrific to hear. You know, people are dealing with the devastation of, yeah, the loss of homes and, uh, yeah, their livelihood and such things. And then, yeah, to have certain members of the community um, taking advantage is pretty awful or just adds to it. But they've got the Defence Force still in there. There are more people... um, search and rescue and emergency service people still coming or going across from Australia to help because now it's the cleanup. And uh, yeah, this has been pretty horrific. I mean, the New Zealand Prime Minister referred to it as the biggest natural disaster this century. There are concerns that they're going to have more horrific weather events um, or, you know, uh, terrible weather events happening. But right now it's contacting those that have not been contacted and trying to estimate how to deal with all of the loss, it's going to, it's going to um, cost a huge amount of money, uh, millions of dollars, if not more. And that's what happens, you know, is these events are terrible. You've got the trauma of the immediate event, but then you've got the ongoing trauma and the efforts to clean up, to... You know, we no. house people. Just to just to yeah, rebuild that infrastructure is going to take some time, Katie. It's going to be a long time to rebuild a lot of the infrastructure. We've seen it happen here with KZN. Uh, you know, we we see yeah. the flash floods, and quite interesting that Kevin was chatting uh, to us. You know about. Uh, the fact that uh, these 30 dangerous feedback loops uh, could permanently shift the, the Earth's climate. And I think that is something that, uh, that, that, that one needs to sort of look at going forward because there's definitely a shift in, in the climate from when you were younger and I was younger. You know, we knew when summer was and we knew where winter was. These days you don't know exactly where it is. Um, but, Katie, they, no. you, you've got... No, and it's... Um, mm. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, the unpredictability of it. I mean, we were experiencing what was supposed to be 
one of our hottest days on record yesterday, and then suddenly you know, we had these massive storms, and you know, 60,000 homes and businesses in Sydney last night lost power. And it's this unpredictability. It's yeah, it's pretty horrific. Uh, so well, at, at least you well know, at least you had a taste of load shedding. I mean, we've just moved overnight into load shedding stage. What is it, six, Vicky? Yeah, and then we're going to be load shedding stage four. Uh, and we've acclimatized ourselves. I think we've kind of like normalized load shedding in the country, which is just like, ah, what we accepted. Uh, World Pride 2023 kicks off in Sydney back. You know, it's the biggest event since the 2000 Olympics. And this is set to draw quite a number of visitors. Um, sounds like a, a part yeah. of the purpose for me. Well, look, it's it's been hugely exciting um, for those in Sydney. So, uh, just a bit of um, explanation. So basically, World Pride is part of Interpride, which is a global network, and that's um, Interpride consists of around 400 LGBTQIA organisations uh, that are part, yeah they're part of that from 70 odd countries, and they've been running this since 2000. And every two to three years, there's a different host city. So, you know, like the Olympics and World Cups and such, you bid for that. And it's Sydney's turn, which is, I mean, Sydney's turn, sorry, to host, which is fantastic because it's also the 50th anniversary of our first um, Australian Gay Pride Week and the 45th anniversary of our very, very well-known iconic Mardi Gras. So we've got two weeks of these wonderful colours colourful celebrations. You know, there are parts of the city saying they've just become rainbow-like, you know, rainbow flags and rainbow posters and rainbow stickers in the streets. And there's this iconic, huge shark that sits outside the big natural history museum and the shark's been clothed in (laughs) rainbow colours. And, yeah, so there are all these events that are going to go on, some free, some not, over the next couple of weeks, people visiting from all over, it's hugely, hugely exciting. And plus, they're going to have the largest um, Pride conference in the Southern Hemisphere that's going to be happening from the 1st to the 3rd of March, where they'll be discussing all sorts of relevant issues. So it's kind of like party festival time, mm. thing. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful to see. Well, 500,000 visitors into, uh, you know, into Sydney brings quite a bit of money into the areas and 17, 17 days extravaganza. That sounds like a party to me. Um, turning yeah. to, to another story, Katie, and we're chatting to Katie McDonald uh, from Sydney this morning. And, of course, we chat every Sunday to Katie about what's happening in the world and specifically in, uh, in Australia and New Zealand. The positive outcomes of Tinder for farmers, and this is actually not a dating app. Exactly. And I have to <laughs> share this thing because, um, yeah, I'm a little bit of a, a sort of, you know, App cynic, um, you know, doing the social media detox, that kind of a thing at the moment. But um, this is wonderful. So, yeah, someone referred to it as Tinder for Farmers. And essentially what it is, it's connecting older farmers, older people on the land and younger people who are trying to establish themselves within the farming community. And it's a social enterprise uh, social enterprise, sorry, um, group called Cultivate Farms. And what they do, they, as I said, they connect the old with the new, and you've got an increasing age of Australian farmers. So about 50% of Aussie farmers are expected to retire in the next 15 years. And you can well imagine 
the the knowledge that you lose, and not all of these people have got, you know, youngsters that will take over their farms or that they can automatically pass this knowledge on to. So they match people, you know, industry um, experts uh, with younger people, and they put together all sorts of initiatives. You know, you've got younger farmers or younger people that want to start farming that connect and they might rent or, yeah, work a farm in exchange for accommodation, profits, all sorts of things. So the idea is to keep the knowledge going, to keep um, or to encourage more people to go onto the land. You know, we're a big rural country, as you are as well. And I just thought that was a wonderful, wonderful story and a positive sort of uh, non-dating connection app. I don't Mm. know how you want to refer to it, but I just thought it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, a number, a number of countries don't realize that you're actually quite lucky if you have large-scale farming and you still have farmers who tend the mm-hmm. land in order to bring about food security for that particular country, which is absolutely fantastic. Katie, have yourself a wonderful rest of whatever is left over of your Sunday. <laughs> I will. And, uh, yeah, hopefully um, Monday brings you a, a new world, and we chat to you again next Sunday morning. And thank you, Zane. Good to speak. Katie McDonald chatting to us this morning and catching up with what's happening down under.